Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Joyce Carol Oates on her latest novel, Breathe. Joyce Carol Oates is a recipient of the National Book Critics Circle Lifetime Achievement Award, the National Book Award, the Penn Malamud Award, the LA Times Book Award and the Jerusalem Prize. Her books include We Were the Mulvaney's, Blonde, Carthage, A Book of American Martyrs, Hazards of Time Travel, My Life as a Rat and Night, Sleep, Death, The Stars. She's a professor of humanities at Princeton University and at NYU. And today we're going to be talking about Joyce's latest novel, Breathe. Joyce, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Tell me, first of all, how you would describe Breathe. Well, that's, that's a good question. I guess I should just concede that it is a memoir that has been reimagined as a work of fiction. And as a work of fiction, it's in the genre I would call very intense realism, psychological realism. But I also structured it so that one could read it as a realistic document, more or less with a chronological story. But one could also read it as taking place out of time, so to speak. So the short Mm. chapters that are italicized might be pointing to another time, out of time, in which Makala herself is in a fever state. Yeah, it's interesting you say a almost like a linear narrative because you do play around with time a lot in the book because the subject of the book is grief and bereavement and it beautifully articulates that idea that you would just lose your concept of time when shortly after being bereaved. So I wanted to talk more about this, you know, this use of time and how time works in the book. Well, yes, I'm very interested in the workings of the human brain. I wrote a novel called The Man Without a Shadow, which is about a very, it was inspired by a very famous amnesiac who is known as H.M. in the United States. He was um, a person who suffered extreme amnesia, and therefore he was studied by many neuroscientists, including my late husband, Charlie Gross. So I'm very interested in the phenomenon of memory how memory is very valuable and how we reimagine and re-revise while always thinking that we're remembering accurately and very often we're not. And also there are 
there are experiences in consciousness that we just don't comprehend. For instance, we have all of us have anesthesia sometimes, and our brains are not exa- not exactly put to sleep. I mean, the brain is still operating, but we're so, what we call our consciousness or our ego is just gone. It's just extinguished. But the brain under anesthesia is still a living brain. You know, something something is going on in it. But when we wake up, often it doesn't seem as if any time has gone past at all. And we can't remember anything. You might have an operation that, that could be hours long, but it will seem just like seconds. So all these phenomena are somehow encased in the human brain and part of our experience as human beings. And I'd like to explore them in my fiction, sometimes almost with a a philosophical uh, perspective, uh, sometimes more emotionally immediate, uh, you know, working with my own experience, my own life. So I want to talk about our two main characters, Michaela and Gerard McManus. I guess we'll talk about Gerard first, because that would probably make Michaela happy if we did that. So tell us something about Gerard, who he is. Well, Gerard is actually inspired by my late husband, Charlie, who was uh, quite a distinguished neuroscientist. So Gerard is not at Princeton, but he's at Harvard. He's, he's really not identical with my my husband. And Michaela is not identical with me. As I said, I was sort of using using the perimeters of memoir and really reimagining the same material and the same emotions, but reimagining them with different people, slightly different setting, and more of a complicated plot. And so it both is and both is and is not, you know, based on real people. So Gerard was is a professor at Harvard, and he's interested in going to the West of the United States, which is very different from the East. Most obvious thing that happens when you go West and go to a place like Santa Tierra, which is inspired by Santa Fe, the most obvious thing that happens immediately is that you can't breathe. You're very short of breath because oxygen is not being uh, utilized by your brain. Your brain's not getting enough oxygen. And so your heart goes a little faster and you may have feelings of slight panic or maybe just hyper excitement. You enter a different state of consciousness if you're coming from sea level, which is where I come from when I go west. So he goes out west and he wants to, he gets very interested in endangered languages, studying the languages of a number of Native American tribes and peoples who who are, we might call Aboriginal uh, Native Americans whose ancestors very much predate any, any white, you know, white settlers from England. So we're in a, in a landscape that both is and isn't America or United States. The United States is a relatively new nation, but North America has been there for, you know, millions of years. And so when Americans come to parts of North America or South America, they're really moving into regions that predate their own uh, civilization. So Gerard gets very interested in endangered languages and Makala learns that really after his death when she's looking at his manuscript. And Makala comes into uh, some sort of really awkward and 
frightening relationship with these deities or gods of um, an earlier culture. She encounters them, first of all, in the house that they rented. There are these little sculptures that seem to her very, very horrifying. We are accustomed in a more Christian and conventional society. We're accustomed to gods that are very good. The Savior is good. There is not a wicked or demonic or destructive God. In Christianity, there are, there are saints and there are, there's a trinity. In Catholicism, there's a whole plethora of saints, but they're all good. And Mary, Mary is good. She was born without any original sin. We don't have a tradition of gods who are also destructive, who are wicked or pranksters. Native Americans often have gods they, that are called pranksters, prankster gods. They're very mischievous. So anyway, these two are coming from a very civilized part of the United States, more like sea level, and they're coming to this other more primitive world. And first of all, they can't breathe there. Then they start encountering elements of that other culture. So this is all sort of a long preamble just to explain what I was trying to do in a novel and why it is, some of it is my own experience, but some of it is not. One of the ways in which Gerard and Michaela differ from you know yourself and, and your own late husband, if I can be as so impolite as to say, is in their age. They are Michaela's in her late 30s, Gerard in his late 40s. And and I only raise this because this is basically the same age as myself and my own wife. And I found this book beautiful, but also really tough going at some times. You know, a really deeply involving read because it really got to some of my own anxieties about our future. And once in New Mexico, they're only just arrived in New Mexico for Gerard to take up this position. And very rapidly, he becomes ill. And we see him very quickly. All of this, of course, we're seeing we're seeing through Michaela's eyes. Um, she's the protagonist of this story. But we see him deteriorate from somebody with a, a mild troubling ailment, which is basically an annoyance. He doesn't want to be in hospital because he's got work to do, to deteriorating very rapidly. And I, I wonder if you'd say something about this rapid deterioration of Gerard's at the hospital? Well, I suppose this is an experience that many, many people have. Maybe it's the quintessential experience. First of all, you just start off, you're not feeling so well, but you think it's probably very minor and you really don't want to go to the hospital, but your spouse makes you go and, and there are tests. And what I've noticed about this experience, and this was in a way not the first time in my life that I've seen this happen, there's always this air of incredulity, you know, this air of total surprise. The person who's not feeling so well thinks that he'll be in the hospital for, you know, for tests and then he'll go home. And then, then it turns out that he's going to be there overnight. And that's a whole new surprise. But then he's not well enough to go home again and something happens. But I, I've noticed always there's this air of surprise that there's something in all of our brains, as certainly in the United States right now, what we call denial, maybe it's a cliche, people who will not 
see what is right in front of their eyes. It's actually astonishing. The attitude of uh, approximately one quarter, one third of Americans who some of them think that the virus is a hoax, you know, that somehow over 600,000 people have died, but it's not Somehow it's not real because they've been told that on on a television program. Anyway, I'm interested in that strange phenomenon of denial because I experience it myself. All along the line, this surprise, you know, cannot really believe it. And people will say, well, this is ridiculous. You know, I'll be home soon and I'm fine and and so forth. And then it just keeps happening. It's sort of like like a whirlpool. So I wanted to delineate that. Then there's a thought, too, especially between a husband and wife, that they want to talk things over. They want to discuss things. But once this starts to happen, time accelerates, and there's so much to talk about. Suddenly it's the next day, then it's the next day after that. And you're in this different time. Time just flattens, and there is a, it's like there isn't any time. So I wanted to write what... I would think might be the most complete uh, documentation of just being at the bedside in a hospital vigil. I just wanted to put everything into it. And I don't think I've ever read anything like this, though maybe there have been memoirs. But I really wanted to make it very candid and very honest, including also the fantasies that we have. We have lots of fantasies about alternative lives. One of the, I guess, one of the consequences of this book being almost real time, right there at the bedside as Gerard deteriorates, and you know, sort of very intense examination of both the deterioration and then the grieving process, is that actually we don't know that much. We don't find out that much about Gerard and Michaela's relationship before this incident. We hear some of it and obviously it's all filtered through Michaela's own opinion and certainly she she sees herself as subordinate to to Gerard's genius in in some ways even though you know as we'll perhaps talk about later she's a you know very accomplished writer herself so I guess this was obviously a a choice to not give us too much detail too much for us to basically interpret the relationship ourselves Well, when something like this happens and you're in an emergency situation, it's so real and so intense that your life up to that point doesn't seem as interesting. There's one scene, maybe like a little bit past the halfway point of the novel, where Mercala is supposed to be doing something because there's a lot for a widow to do, a lot of uh, documentation and taking care of the will and telephone calls. And she's just sort of standing there, I think. And she goes into this almost dream, which is a memory. She sees the two of them coming home. They had gone shopping at a grocery store. And they're coming home and stepping into the kitchen. And they put the bags down. And they start taking the items out of the bag. And the husband puts something in the wrong place in the freezer. And she thinks, well, I'll I'll put it in the right place a little later. I won't. She's not going to say anything to her. Him at the moment, which is something that wives are doing all the time. Husband's made a little mistake. It's not important. But why tell him about it? You know, and she's sort of standing there. And she's remembering and seeing this. And she sees that they're talking to one another. And she suddenly is overwhelmed with this sense of terror. She can't remember 
what were they talking about? Now, I've certainly had that experience. Trying to remember very intimate conversations that were so beautiful and real and, you know, very touching and affectionate. Trying to remember them only a few weeks later. It's astonishing how these very precious moments between two people, how they melt away. Unless you're writing something down immediately, it's all going to be gone. And one of the reasons it's gone is that so much else keeps coming in. It's like all the waves on shore. There's one really fantastic wave, but then there's another wave, and then there's another one. Then there are 15 waves, and you can't remember that wave that was distinctive. So I wanted to write all that down. It's just a fact of human life. I'm not saying that it's a tragedy. I don't know that it's a tragedy, but it's certainly not a comedy. I mean, these are just experiences that one has in life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joyce Carol Oates, and we're talking about her latest novel, Breathe. And Joyce, I want to start the second half talking about Mikala and her her unraveling. Before we do that, to get into that, you're very prolific on Twitter and social media, and one of the relatively recent 
few hours of controversy that you um, that you spread on Twitter was a, a comment about the modern predilection towards autofiction. And um, Macarlo in this book, she's teaching a class on memoir and indeed has written, although she's only you know mid to late 30s, has written a couple of volumes of well-received memoir herself. And I was aware, obviously, that, you know, you were recently widowed yourself. So, of course, that was going to influence a book of this subject matter. But to hear you also say explicitly that this is a disguised memoir is interesting. And perhaps we could talk about the use of memoir here, both for yourself and Makala, in terms of memoir itself, or indeed the idea of autofiction, does seem to be something that people are using much more now. Well, I think I think there are, at the same time, you know, simultaneously with autofiction, there are very large novels that deal with social issues, especially ethnic American identity you know, no- novels that deal with many things. Autofiction is just one stream, mm-hmm. you know, one tributary, let's say, flowing into a large river that's literature itself. And I was probably reacting because I was a judge for a competition, and we were reading different kinds of writing. Say I must have read 50 novels. So the autofiction novels are all very short, and they're very modest, you know, in, in minimalist in, in their plots and their ambition is almost, it's almost nothing. I mean, the ambition is, is not like Proust. You could say remembrance of things past is some sort of autofiction, but that it's not, you know, it's not adequate because Proust was also a beautiful stylist and he was revolutionizing the whole concept of, of fiction. So I'm reading a, a variety of novels and then I come to these little thin autofiction And it just seemed to me so, well, all kinds of writing is fine. You know, I don't don't really care that much about being judgmental. But compared to a really ambitious novel, let's say something by Toni Morrison or John Edgar Wideman or Colson Whitehead or many other people, the autofiction just seems to be very anemic. So I didn't really mean to get into that at great detail. And my novel is not autofiction. It's really not. It's more about the uh, kind of surreal penumbra that one experiences in a hospital and after the death of a loved one. I wanted to explore kind of estrangement that we feel from the world, the encroachment of the environment, a kind of transpersonal experience. That is, there are experiences in our lives at certain points that really are not dependent upon our being particular people, but just being human beings. The most obvious one would be birth. We're born, and this is a transpersonal universal experience, which we don't do voluntarily, and we uh, we don't remember. And I suppose death is like that also. It's analogous. These are experiences that don't belong to us as individuals. And Makala has these experiences throughout the novel that don't necessarily belong to only her, but belong to anyone who's undergoing the sort of experience that she is undergoing. I think it's a phenomenon that when you lose somebody close to you, it's such a trauma to your sense of the the ontological status of human beings that you can't really grasp that this person isn't 
somewhere. You know, like the person could be in another city or in Australia. Uh, you can't really quite fully grasp that there's nowhere that you can find that person anymore. I think intellectually we know that, but emotionally I think it's very difficult. And I think children probably can't grasp that. That helps to explain why ghosts are believed in by many people because they, they're so haunted that they give a kind of visual form to the hauntedness. Michaela, she hallucinates. She sees Gerard everywhere. He's ever-present in the, in the second part of the book after he has died. And she becomes undone. She said she hallucinates. She stops eating. She mysteriously starts to self-harm, it would seem. And she feels herself becoming feral, becoming animal. And there's this particular horrific, like elements of horror come into the book in this sequence that's repeated where she she feels that she's given, she imagines that she has basically given bone marrow, had an operation to give Gerard bone marrow in an attempt to save him. And that this has somehow then been stolen from her and used elsewhere. Tell us about this sequence. There are a number of quasi-hallucinatory episodes in, in the novel. It's almost like they're alternative lives. I don't know what status to give them. In a, in a realistic novel, they would be considered d- dreams. But in another sort of fiction, like slipstream fiction or surreal fiction, those experiences are as real as anything else. You know, if you have a nightmare at night, it is a psychic experience that was real. It's not, not something that's fiction. It was actually a nightmare can be real. So she does have these these thoughts, which someone in her position would probably think one of the things you think is how can I help how can I help my spouse you know how can I help this person who's sort of helpless in in a hospital so we want to think well we can donate some blood we can donate a kidney we can donate uh, some bone marrow I mean it's quite possible none none of these things are really impossible and they have been done so. I wanted to write about things that were not impossible, you know, maybe improbable, that the mind is sort of reaching out blindly, trying to think, how can I help this person? And so much in our lives is contingent. It's quite possible that these two, this couple went swimming in a lake in upstate New York before they went out to the West and one of those lakes where the waters are warm, warmer than usual in the last few years. We don't have the cold uh, winters that we used to have in, in some parts of the world. And so the microorganisms that thrive and are very uh, fecund in these, these mountain lakes are not dying out the way they have in the past. So they went swimming in this lake. I I can see it in my mind's eye because it's based on a certain lake in upstate New York. So in this lake now, if you get water up your nose and it goes into your brain, you can be infected with a very deadly kind of amoeba that might not have existed before or it was not a problem before. There have been instances of this being reported in, in, in North America. So I wanted to suggest that the environment is maybe partly to or entirely to blame for what's happening, that the environment is not the environment that we grew up with. It's become alienated from us and we're estranged, but we don't really know it. 
So we go swimming in a lake where we've been swimming for many, many years or decades, but one year it's changed. And there are microorganisms in the water now that are lethal, but before they weren't. So maybe Makala and Gerald are coming west and they're already infected. I wanted to suggest that as a possibility. Maybe all of us living right now, as we read about these things, you know, in the newspaper, maybe we're already in some way infected by our environment, but we don't know it. To finish this off, can I get you to, to read this a little bit? Sorry, this sounds so uh, sort of apocalyptic. <laughs> but, you know... I think that's entirely appropriate after the, the, must the say, news of the last week. The last year or more, since March 2020 has been this sort of apocalyptic roller coaster, uh, maybe in England, but also particularly in the United States, where we have this sort of insanely toxic president and a very, a very anti-science right-wing uh, minority in America that nonetheless has enormous political power. So it's been a kind of nightmare. The pandemic is bad enough, but we were, in the, we're also in a toxic political situation, which would be enough in itself for a nightmare. Yeah, so I'll read just this little chapter. I was speaking of the transpersonal. I'm very interested in philosophical ideas in a very realistic way, you know, in relationship to the human brain. This is a little chapter, less than one page. It's just really a paragraph, like a prose poem. And all the, uh, the short chapters are all prose poems. The man who never dreams. He has claimed that he never dreams. You've told him, maybe you just don't recall your dreams. He insists it's analogous to amnesia. If you don't remember an event, it didn't happen. What isn't imprinted in the brain cells doesn't exist, quote unquote. It hasn't really happened. And But you protest. But of course it has happened. If you feel pain, you felt pain. No, no, he says. If there's no recording of the pain in your brain, it didn't happen to you. It may have happened to a living, sentient being. But if your brain didn't record it and you have no memory of it, it didn't happen to you. So I've been talking to Joyce Carol Oates. We've been talking about her latest novel, Breathe, which is out in the UK from 40 State. Joyce, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.